This is Dialogue with Drake and Dabu. My name is Emma Drake. And I am Sweta Dabu. This is the podcast where we talk about all things policy, politics, and pop culture. The spring sitting of the PEI Legislative Assembly has just wrapped up, after 11 weeks of sitting. This was an unprecedented sitting due to many factors, including a brand new parliamentary calendar, planning weeks, and no evening hours. In addition, this was a COVID sitting, with the many restrictions that are applicable here. Many topics were debated, and there were a number of different key themes throughout, of course with COVID-19, and in general, health was at the forefront, but then as well, the voting age, climate change, land, water, online gaming, and social support programs. As well, as folks anticipated, the operational budget was also tabled and approved with a final vote tally of 18 to 7. In addition, committee work was also highlighted throughout with the introduction of legislation, debates, and various presentations. While a lot of folks were watching the proceedings, few followed it as closely as journalists who reported on the prominent debates and kept the rest of us updated. With us today to discuss the spring sitting of the legislature is CBC legislative reporter, patio enthusiast, and accordion player, Carrie Campbell. Thank you so much, Carrie, for being with us this afternoon. Our first question for you is, how are you doing on this sunny Sunday afternoon? Yeah, it's so nice to get some beautiful weather finally this weekend. I got out in the yard yesterday and got our, uh, our, our patio furniture set up and our yard lights and things like that. And it just, it's, uh, this is an important part every year of, you know, getting ready for the summer. And it kind of makes things feel a little bit normal, maybe, mm -hmm. even though things still aren't quite normal. But it's nice to feel that maybe we're, we're moving that way. Mm -hmm. And it's a pleasure to be on your show. I'm a big fan of the podcast, of course. I learned so many things. I learned things that I, I try to follow up with. I have followed up with in my professional job as a journalist. It was, uh, I think, from your podcast where I first heard the premier. I knew we were going to have these electric school buses, but um, he actually put a date on it, said we were going to hope to use them in a transit pilot starting this fall. Um, that's one of the things I learned. I got an update from the head of the nurses union through your podcast on where things were with <laughs> mobile mental health response units. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a fan and, and it's, uh, it's my honor to, to that you asked me to be on here. It's, it's incredible to hear you say that because I know that personally and I know probably for Emma as well, as soon as something new comes up and we are not quite sure what to make of it, it's like, let's see if Carrie has tweeted about this recently because that's probably reliable information. <laughs> I don't know. I might go from the tweets, but I'd love that you do that. Thank you. <laughs> and the articles too, everything. Yes, yes. Yeah, well, it's so nice to have you on and, and we're really excited for our episode today, obviously talking about your wheelhouse, the legislature. So uh, as our listeners know, the spring sitting of the legislature just wrapped up last week. So Carrie, our first question for you, as someone who's been following along, what are the three most notable either pieces of debate or legislation that took place in the spring sitting and why? Yeah. And I mean, I really want to hear what you guys think, too. So please, I know I'm your guest, but please feel <laughs> free to jump in with your thoughts. Um, the healthcare debate throughout this sitting was, I, I don't think I've ever seen a, a debate like that from, you know, early on when um, the issue was mobile mental health response units. And there was this day where, I mean, we had uh, just going into the budget, 
we had broken this story that um, Medivy, the private company responsible yes. for ambulance service, was going to be managing this. And I had been kind of um, asking the minister about it at that point for a week until I felt, okay, well, we have enough information here and the unions had provided everything they had. Um, so, so that story had been out there. Then the minister came back. There was a break, one of the break weeks, uh, the study weeks or whatever mm. they have now. Uh, and then we came back after the budget and then the minister had kind of done a bit of a 180. We had had a question period on budget day that all the reporters, you know, or the, or the, the, the regular reporters who would be there had missed because they were in the budget lockup uh, <laughs> where the premier addressed this issue and kind of, you know, uh, it seemed like he was admitting, well, yes, this is where we're headed with this. But, uh, you know, I forget the rationale he gave, but then we got back after a week and, and the health minister was there saying, well, no, actually, Medivy's not going to be managing this. The same day that we got a PowerPoint presentation from the unions that came from Health PEI saying Medivy is going to be managing this, uh, and here's how this is going to work. Uh, so again, that was the be sort of the beginning of this really bizarre uh, healthcare debate throughout, where we kept getting um, either the minister didn't have the information or he provided information with which contradicted Health PEI. Um, uh, you know, I, I think by the end we finally got uh, and sort of this admission from. Uh, the health minister, Ernie Hudson, that the liberal opposition had this document about, you know, uh, um, surgery diversions from Prince County Hospital that mm -hmm. he didn't have and mm -hmm. that he should have had it. Um, so it raised questions in my mind all along, just what what was health PEI providing in terms of information and briefings uh, mm -hmm. to the minister? There it's an, was an important disconnect because um, the minister of health is the accountability Yes. for the healthcare system. And if the Minister of Health doesn't seem to understand what's happening, isn't being provided that information or, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not here to pin it on the minister, Ernie Hudson, um, but there was a disconnect there. He, if he's saying he doesn't have the information, if Health PEI hasn't properly briefed him on what it's doing, then it's impossible for the MLAs in the legislature to do their job, which is to hold you know, the political leadership accountable for what's happening with, you know, the most important portfolio uh, in the provincial government, uh, um, you know, in the budget book. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was kind of a complete breakdown there. Uh, yeah. And I don't know what happens from this point. You know, there were a couple opportunities where, um, you know, the acting CEO of Health PEI appeared in, you know, we, we had a radio interview and then yeah. a week later we had a, a TV interview where we got some information there, but that's, um, we can't rely on that. And, and certainly politicians, I mean, they were, uh, they were coming back to question period with information that they learned from the CBC interviews. That's not <laughs> how that, I know it's, it, and the one point you love to see that because it's like, my job is to bring information yeah. to light and, uh, you know, they, they weren't my interviews, but, uh, uh, <laughs> but that's not how MLAs are supposed to be able to hold government accountable. It's not a very good way for them to do that. They need to be able to ask a minister who's uh, aware of what's going on and, and who can explain it. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, so you can have that back and forth political debate as to, you know, is this the right uh, direction? You know, the Greens clearly think that the PCs are, are moving towards privatization in a number of areas of healthcare, and, and they don't agree with that. Uh, so there's kind of a philosophical political debate yeah. there, but also just to provide information on what's happening in this important care, uh, important file at, at a time when, as, as government was was often pointing out, that we're going, we are still in the midst of this pandemic.
Mm-hmm. So that that was like something I, I hadn't ever seen before. There's number one. <laughs> um, I, I don't know for the rest of our list here. Um, the the ombudsperson legislation, uh, mm. I think that probably has the most far reaching consequences, I would say, mm-hmm. uh, of everything that that came forward in terms of regular islanders and their day to day lives. Um, it's funny, you look back, I, um, the day that that passed second reading, I didn't even realize that uh, Herb Dickinson, uh, the only NDP MLA yeah. PPI's ever had, mm-hmm. had brought forward a bill in 1998, um, you know, <laughs> trying to do the same thing. And so he, uh, he released a little statement the day after this one had finally passed second reading. Uh, and, and I also talked to him on the phone that night. This is what I love about PEI politics. It's like eight <laughs> o'clock at night. I'm on deadline searching through Hansard. I just found out this bill was tabled in 1998. I can call up the person who sponsored it yeah. who hasn't been in the house since then. And he told me, oh, Carrie, I was just writing you a letter about this. <laughs> so what so, Herb Dickinson had, the case he had made back in the day was um, this issue. I don't, you guys won't remember this. And it's not as much of an issue when we go through a, a change in government anymore. But um, especially in the bins days, there had been, yeah. you know, these mm-hmm. stories of all the plow drivers lost their jobs because those yeah. are the liberal plow drivers and you hire the conservative plow drivers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was something that I think Islanders became accustomed to. Uh, I, I hope that either they're getting better at hiding that or it's less of it is happening. But this is what Herb Dickinson had said back in the late 1990s as to why PEI needed an ombudsman. Um, mm-hmm. I think the, the line from government at the time was, well, I mean, first of all, we're the smallest province. We can't afford this. Also, we have 27 ombuds people that sit in the legislature um were we yeah were we to 27 i might it might have been 32 back then now that i th- i'd have to look back i can't remember what time we changed um was, anyway eh? i think it was 96 was the year that we did the flip from um the 32 to 27 so okay so we yeah. had just gotten 27 so those were the 27 ombuds people according to the government of the day i think there's an argument to be made that because pei is so small you might need this more than you do in bigger provinces because, I mean, politics is affects people on such a direct personal level in this province, you know, when every MLA is responsible for, you know, just a few thousand people and they feel that they need to call on that MLA on a regular basis with whatever issues they might have that, um, anyway, it was a long time coming. Um, mm-hmm. And there have been calls over the years, the Liberals promised in 2007, Robert Giz, that they would create an ombudsman, they never did. So um, mm-hmm. that was, a. Uh, it's nice to see something like that finally come to fruition. And I think I'm, I'm all for um, having those people in positions of power that can help hold government to account. So we finally got the child advocate, yeah. uh, you know, uh, after the 2019 election. And here we are now with uh, an ombudsperson on the way. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess we'll, we shouldn't get too far ahead of ourselves here. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that was a significant piece of legislation coming forward. Um, number that was number two number three <laughs> uh, i don't and i feel like i'm probably forgetting things right but um i thought just in the last week of the legislature this debate around forests um that was really interesting the way that came up i've actually haven't uh, i don't think we're seeing I, I i'm curious whether Corey deagle who had he was the first person to bring up the questions 
Um, and then Peter Bevan Baker followed up on it the next day, as, if I recall correctly. Um, I don't think we've seen, we haven't seen like the, we did in the old days when I was covering the liberals where um, the backbench MLAs are clearly providing questions that they were provided by the minister. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, no, I, I don't think they're doing that at all. I'm curious what, uh, what got Deagle asking that question because it just seems like Stephen Myers was maybe just wanted to uh, kind of broach this topic in the way that he did, uh, getting it out there that, you know, this forest report is coming. I was told we might not even get it until 2023. That's oh. what the department said. But, um, you know, that the 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 news is not good. Um, I, that's a very interesting way to put that public messaging out there for a government minister. I'm still used to... Um, ministers, governments trying to hide anything that's not good news, whether, you know, it's their fault or not. I mean, I think Stephen Myers, uh, he didn't specifically say it, I don't think in his answers, but, you know, this is a, a decade of deforestation, so it yep. doesn't fall on the PCs. Um, so doesn't really make his administration look bad to get it out there. I'm still used to governments trying to hide anything that's not good news. Uh, you know, either making, you know, groups in the in the community or you know, maybe the watershed groups or someone come forward with these concerns or, yeah. you know, some industrious reporter to look at the numbers in a report and say, wait a minute, you know, why, why are the hectares of forest down by 20 percent? I, I, I think they also oversold it on the first day when he put that figure out there, because in question period, he said a 20 percent decline. It sounded like that was over a decade. It's since 1990. It's still a significant decline. Yes. And yeah. most of that decline would have been over the last decade, if that's what the figure turns out to be. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, just uh, to have government try to put out the problem there in the way that they did, I found was was very interesting. And we had follow ups pretty much every day on that topic, certainly from Peter Bevan Baker. So that was interesting to see happen. Uh, and then, well, that was three. Um, I did enjoy, I liked hearing so much debate about the casino, the iCasino. Yeah. I, I don't think we really got anywhere. I mean, we did get the Minister of Finance to commit that the revenues which will kind of be a drop in the bucket in terms of healthcare spending, but that those will go towards mental health. There's going to be a review, uh, which I think was already going to happen anyway, of the, the responsible gaming strategy. Um, and this is putting this on the list in number four is kind of self-serving because I, as a journalist, I love to see my, what I love to do more than maybe anything else is find something out that people didn't know about, put it out into the public sphere and then watch people talk about it. Yeah. So yeah. this was a, I stumbled onto this story and this is, I'm not even really bragging here because I think <laughs> Atlantic Lotto got to the point where they had had this casino operating in New Brunswick for like, I don't know how many months at that point and just wanted the information out there and were in this awkward position because they had never made an announcement and it was going to be difficult to do one so many months after they did it. So I was interviewing their CEO, um, uh, who's gone now, uh, and he just kind of dropped that they had this. Then I saw the order and council go through. The PEI was going to follow suit. Yeah. Um, and then, so anyway, a series of stories that, that we've had on that for the region. Um, so yeah, it was, it was I, I love seeing that debate come up. The liberals brought this up every day for, I think it was about almost two weeks, I think they, they, they brought this to question period. So but there, there was a little bit of, uh, of movement in terms of, I guess, where government is on this and 
but I think we, there's still a lot that we have to learn on it. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think what's been also really interesting this last sitting is kind of the cohesiveness of the debate from start to finish. Typically, you find that people start with a topic, then that's resolved and you move on to something else and then something else. Whereas this time, it seemed like the same themes that we found at the start were also there at the end of the sitting uh, with not necessarily many resolutions happening um, in the meantime. But, you know, this year, of course, is a COVID year, which is very different from previous years in terms of covering the Legislative Assembly. Uh, media especially has experienced a different setup these last few weeks. Uh, what is that setup like? Um, how does it differ from before? And how did it impact your role as a journalist? We, uh, we know you've mentioned before that, you know, it's more difficult to see who's uh, speaking or who's voting. Uh, but, you know, how has that process been for you? Yeah, well, uh, uh, you know, it's... Um... I think in a lot of ways, the journalists are the, there to be the eyes and ears of the public and the eyes and ears of the public are not in that room anymore. Yeah. That's the biggest difference that we're still not allowed to be in the room where debate is happening. And so, as you said, Sweta, it's um, there are times when we can't see who voted uh, mm -hmm. if they don't call a standing vote, uh, if people are just putting their hands up. And I know we've talked to uh, uh, the, the clerk's office about, you know, trying to get a wide shot when they're doing a, a hand vote or whatever, but it's still, we're, we're, we're missing a lot, um, you know, when it's a voice vote. Um, I was, one of the concerns I had, um, you know, going into, you know, for instance, when the house finally closed on Thursday, um, you remember when Robert Henderson um, denied to give his unanimous consent for, I think it was for a bill to go to third reading. That was whatever, I think it was 2019, was it? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And then the House had to continue sitting. Uh, well, you're not in the chamber. You need someone to tell you who, who, was, uh, that? who was that. Yeah, because you mm -hmm. can't see it now. If you're in the chamber, you might miss it anyway. If we're allowed <laughs> to be in the chamber, we're not always in there. But yeah. the ability to be able to be in there. Uh, and honestly, the uh, I remember my, my wife, Teresa Wright, who had even more experience at this than I do, uh, had kind of, she was the first person who pointed this out to me. MLAs can behave differently if the, you know, uh, the journalists are in the room. Sometimes it gets them to act up more. Sometimes it gets them to settle down. It depends on what they're doing and what party they're with. And, um, but it makes a difference to have the, the, the reporters in there and it kind of reminds them that oh yeah because I think sometimes they do maybe forget that this is you know being recorded observed uh written down enhanced so it you miss that I think we also too I think there's been an interesting evolution from that I, the very first question period uh after the 2019 election where the Greens and the PCs, um, you know, agreed to uh, this um, no more uh, heckling, you know, that, yeah, that, that agreement seems to have fallen by the wayside. Um, I can't, honestly, I can tell who's often doing it through my headphones because we're, you know, we're not, again, we're not in the chamber, we're in a mm -hmm. little media room at the Coles building, but I can't <laughs> make out what they're saying. Uh, if I go by what I'm told and, and what my ears are telling me, then the premier and Stephen Myers are, are doing a lot of heckling from the government <laughs> side, but I'm not there to be able to catch it, you know, to find out what it is. And I think that affects that affects what they're doing, too, again, because uh, if you can't be there to observe it to occasionally, you know, I don't know what power a tweet has, but PEI's, you know, PEI's this wonderful place where people are really 
plugged in politically, but it's not a big group. So you don't really have to let a whole lot of people know that this is what this particular MLA said in the chamber. And then they have to own that, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not saying that anything that, you know, if, if it is the premier who's actually doing a lot of it, I don't know what he said. I'm not saying any of it, any of it is um, inappropriate or anything, but it's uh, I just miss being able to be in there. And I think it's an important part of the functioning uh, of, of this legislature to have people who can be in there to observe that. I mean, to say nothing about the general public, um, you know, lots of people have been watching online, but um, as many people who used to go in person will tell you, it's a, you know, it's a different experience and, and something that you want to see opened up as soon as possible. But, mm-hmm. you know, we pushed them uh, on an interim basis to try to get the media in there um, again, to be the eyes and ears as much as we can, and, and we're still not there. Maybe uh, after the the summer, when we're all hopefully getting vaccinated, things might yeah. be different. Mm-hmm. Fabulous points, Carrie. I think like the biggest thing, obviously, with the legislative assembly is let's make sure everyone is safe. You know, regarding COVID nineteen. But then there's also an understanding of, you know, we want to have the members in the Legislative Assembly because they have a job to do. You know, they they are responsible to the public and they have to be in that chamber, you know, doing their role. The other side of that is, though, you know, media has to do their role as well when it comes to, um, like you said, being the eyes and the ears of public, understanding that due to COVID-19, we can't have the gallery and, you know, typically the the full chamber as we normally would. Um, But, you know, understanding that there's a bit of nuance, I think, in the role of media versus kind of access to public, because I think media does it definitely has that, I think, responsibility to be there. And like, you know, one example, like you're talking about kind of being the eyes and ears, like, for example, if, um, you know, government was speaking to something and maybe there was heckling from both the liberals and the greens you could see that, OK, maybe they're both kind of on the same page or, for example, um, you know, if opposition uh, brought something up and then we saw that, um, you know, government wasn't really heckling, but only the liberals were, maybe you could kind of reduce from that. Okay. Yeah. Maybe government is on side and this will move forward. Like there's a lot you can pick up from that. Or, or, or someone from one party speaks, you hear the, the banging of the desks, but you don't know, right? Because you're not in the chamber. It actually can tell you a lot. If certain people from other parties are, are joining in on that if, if certain people aren't joining in on that. Again, both in the context around the dynamic of that room and sort of the, the shifting alliances and things like that and the, and the relationships among the parties, which at times in this sitting seem to be a bit strained between, between <laughs> the liberals and the greens. So yeah, all, all that information and, and we're, uh, we're missing out on a lot. Yeah. And I think, too, more so now than maybe even, um, you know, before 2015, when it was a predominantly two party uh, legislative assembly. Now, with that dynamic of those um, relationships, either between the three different parties or even between some MLAs within one party with another, um, you know, and just kind of the different people to people politics associated with that, that, you know, maybe you would never expect. You don't pick that up in the media room. You pick that up in 
the legislative assembly and it's hard to kind of understand from that okay you know do we think this person's going to vote in favor or we know because they haven't been heckling on this you know maybe they will vote in favor even though we think that they won't like so there's a lot of information like you said in that role of being the eyes and ears that you miss out on and, and not being the room so i know sweden and i hope that you folks get back in the chamber uh this fall hopefully <laughs> so on to the next question another thing that was unique about this sitting was um it was the first time with the new schedule of course last fall um the legislative assembly supported um with the changes for the new schedule that being starting the spring sitting a little bit earlier in february uh, and then allowing for what's known as the the study weeks or the um the break weeks um, where hopefully mlas would be preparing research or uh, working on their legislation etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, you know, this was a big shift in comparison to even, you know, uh, last year with our COVID sitting that was later on in the year. How do you feel this schedule change has impacted the role of the Legislative Assembly, you know, the work that it does and thus the impact on Islanders with those decisions being made? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an improvement in terms of the debate. I think it's really, first of all, uh, starting before the start of the fiscal year seems like a no brainer. Um, I know there were, uh, by the end of this sitting, I think there were some on the, I think the PC side who were saying, well, gee, we were told that maybe we would have our budget passed before April 1st. I don't think that was ever in the cards. I've never seen a budget pass quite that quickly. <laughs> um, but I mean, at least to have the debate start earlier in the year, that makes sense. It was a, would have been a push for government um, you know, with this first budget to have it uh, ready as soon as they did. But um, so that made sense. In terms of the break weeks, I think they gave everyone time to, as you say, the, I think parties really were using that time to, to do research. And this is not an unusual thing. I, I, I know in, in Ottawa, you know, Parliament takes breaks all the time. I'm, I haven't looked up all the other legislatures, but I think it's a pretty normal thing. Uh, PEI has had some, I think, some idiosyncrasies in terms of certainly its calendar. Uh, and, and this may have been one of them. So I think we saw I, the opposition parties, I think, were sort of gassing up during those weeks off. Uh, uh, Sweta, you had mentioned that, you know, there were debates that kind of kept going along through the sitting. I think that was part of what kept that going. They were mostly constructive. Uh, you know, I found I found the, the Prince County Hospital surgery one was a bit frustrating because it kept going on because, you know, government through health PEI, but only dribble out this one little bit of information at a time as the opposition <laughs> will come forward with it. I don't know if that's the best comm strategy because it kept it in the news for much longer than it would have been otherwise. But generally, I think having that time to prepare um, helped with the question periods, but also in the in the budget debate, um, you know, we saw some uh, significant legislation coming on later in the sitting, which I mean, that could have happened anyway. But what happened before is often the budget debate would go on until everyone had just kind of had enough and the weather was turning <laughs> nice. And then suddenly I remember there was one day. Now, there was a lot happening that day, but one day when they really decided they had to close and the health PEI budget, that debate lasted all of 30 minutes. That is the biggest budget they in the books. And um, oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, and these were the things and not to say that that couldn't happen again, but I think it's less likely to happen. So I think we did see, uh, I guess, a more even debate in terms of going through and trying to provide 
the due diligence and the accountability uh, as much as they could on, on all of these items without reaching that point where no one just wanted to be there anymore, which maybe they still got to anyway. But I think the early start and the, I think they call them prep weeks. I don't planning. want to get it wrong. Planning, planning weeks. Planning. Sorry, planning yeah, weeks. yeah, yeah. I know. I've been corrected by them before. I don't want to make it sound like they're taking the time off or anything like that. Um, I think that made for a, a, a better better debate overall. Um, I, I do miss... I have to say this, I miss the evening sittings, even though, you know, I would, as a, as a parent with young children, I was trying not to have to cover them as much as I could, you know, when we had them, because it was just difficult from, mm -hmm. and so I can totally understand why that recommendation was on the books for so long that they shouldn't have those, because, yeah, if you were happened to be a uh, a parent with small children and you had to care for them, then that, that did make it more difficult. Not that other professions don't face difficulties, but um, this is what I miss from the evening sittings is, first of all, uh, there were times when more than other times they would, they would, like I said, they forget sometimes that this is being recorded, everybody's listening, and MLAs would say some things that they would later wish they hadn't said. Um, <laughs> and sometimes that's fun for a reporter. Um, it's, sometimes it's just an opportunity to see how far are they willing to take this, uh, you know? Mm. Uh, one of the ones I remember in particular was um, when the McLaughlin government had put forward its referendum legislation, oh, yes. which totally got ripped apart <laughs> and then put back together. Uh, yeah. But at one point, the, the Justice Minister, Jordan Brown, was asked, this was, you know, this is one of these evening sittings things, that, yeah. you know, if the Guardian wanted to run an editorial on, you know, proportional representation or whatever, would they be allowed to? And his answer was, well, it would depend what's in it. Uh, which is like it's one of those jaw dropping and, and again this is what would happen i think in the evenings is people would say things that they're a bit tired you yeah, know like yeah. <laughs> and you don't think that people are paying as much attention so no. uh yeah i remember putting that in my story and then jordan brown coming to the next day saying i never said that they got it wrong or whatever again that's a, a great compliment for a journalist when you know you got it right and then the yeah. person is saying you got it wrong because they didn't want to have to own that yeah so that's what was fun about some of the evening <laughs> sittings or things that just get a little bit uh wilder or weirder or something uh alan mcisaac going on his little tirade in um tirade maybe that's not the word but his uh uh on the the holstein cow right when oh there was the, yes yeah um bush dumbville had the private members bill to make the red fox uh pei's uh you know <laughs> animal symbol and it had come from this class that had put this forward and these kids had watched it go through the process for years and then it finally gets onto the floor of the legislature and the liberals were not happy with bush dumbville right then because he went renegade and so yes um alan mckisaac uh, tied up that whole debate for well, there's about 40 minutes talking about the, all the great things about holstein cows mm -hmm. Uh, the other thing about evening sittings is members would just walk into the media room and want to casually chat with you. It was good for kind of uh, keeping those <laughs> relationships going, yeah. learning things that way. So I don't want them back at all, but the, the, I do miss these things. They seem to be gone. Um, we'll see now, maybe after COVID, if some of that we might get back in some ways. But mm -hmm. I think you know, from hearing you talk, it seems like the main difference is really all about momentum right now. Uh, not only momentum, you know, from the first day to the last day of the sitting, uh, which you know can now be better maintained when folks have like those planning weeks in the middle uh, to get some work done, but also momentum throughout the day. You know, you start in the morning and you keep going strong till the end of the day, as opposed to letting your guard down in the evening and you know starting to say things that might be fun for us to listen to, but might not be fun <laughs> for the 
elected officials yeah. I, later I, on. I used to hear a rumor that, you know, maybe some of the members, as you might do, might have had a glass of wine with dinner or something, too, while they were out. So maybe they came back and were just a little more uh, likely to be feeling a little more talkative. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> it's as they say, loose lips sink ships. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I've never heard that, but I really like that uh, like that line. Carrie, if I'm remembering correctly, I think the the sitting that you're referring to in relation to former Minister of Justice uh, Jordan Brown was, I think that was spring 2018. I remember it was like the longest sitting ever, and it was like 30 degrees, and they were in the house in like June. I remember, I think it was Premier Wade McLaughlin, um, Jordan Brown, and Tina Mundy had posted a video of them like, singing about how long the sitting was going like yeah, it was there, yeah <laughs> it was a weird time in the PEI legislature and yeah. it was just I think like you said like you get to kind of a breaking point and then things kind of take a little bit of a shift where it's like there's the premier and two ministers singing in front of the legislature that's very bizarre or saying I things remember that, that. Are... I went out yeah someone sent me we heard something and I went out <laughs> from the media room they were, they were just packing up at that point from doing their yeah, a little karaoke or lip sync or whatever that was. It was, <laughs> yeah, that was an odd time. But yeah. <laughs> the yeah. good old days. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, something else that we saw this sitting was, you know, like many others, we heard the word consultation a lot. It's kind of a favorite word of everyone at any given point in time. Um, this time specifically, whether it be, it be about um, government's inquiry into the consultation on the opposition's police act or beat around government's consultations around the online casino, beat around consulting with the PI nurses union around the mobile mental health units. Mm-hmm. This word has come up, you know, a number of times this sitting and that's nothing unusual. So what role do you think consultation really plays in the legislative assembly? Is it really looking at improving legislation or do you think it's kind of a political tool to just check off a few boxes? Well, it's both. I think uh, definitely in this setting, more than I ever remember seeing before, the idea of who did you consult with became a tool, kind of a a weapon to kind of bludgeon the other parties with at times. Um, It sort of started as uh, using this idea as as consultation as, um, well, kind of an escape hatch. Uh, for a couple government ministers, you remember the the, the green bill to lower the voting age to 16 yes. um, and uh, some PCs that were in a bit of a bind because they had supported that when Peter Bevan Baker brought it forward in, what was that, 2016, 2017? Um, yeah, there were four PCs that had voted for that. And then it seemed like the PCs were maybe not wanting to see it go forward at this point. Uh, of course, yeah. back then they were in opposition. Now they're government. So we saw a couple ministers say, well, yes, I, I did that back in 2017. But then, you know, wow, I heard from my constituents and uh, they didn't don't want us to do that. So I'm going to vote against this. Um, <laughs> and of course, there's no way that you can find out, you know, well, it, it's a it's a weird thing to do. And I mean, it got, it's an important thing for an MLA to reflect the wishes of their constituents, but uh, it seems like that might have been a politically expedient way to try to get out of supporting that bill. Uh, and it also raised questions for um, the Greens in particular. Well, you know, which constituents were you uh, were you uh, talking about with this? Because I mean, when you talk about 
whether you should extend the franchise to a certain group. Um, you know, if back in the day when we were talking about extending the vote to women, uh, we probably shouldn't just go ask a bunch of men, do you think this is a good idea? <laughs> uh, this is this is the argument that the Greens made because, I mean, I remember what looking at that debate, I know at some point uh, one of the two government ministers, Matthew McKay, and it was Brad Trivers or the other, yep. was the other one, um, yep. talked about some of the people they'd spoken to. And it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a sampling of, of 16 to 18 year olds in their 17 year olds in their districts. It was, you know, no. kind of everybody and probably a lot of people who already have the franchise. Yeah. So, um, to not support a bill to extend the franchise based on people who already have it saying they don't want that to happen. That's not maybe the best uh, type of consultation for the best <laughs> use of a consultation to go forward. Um, so that was one example. You mentioned uh, the police act. I think by that point we had, I think that what happened with that green bill, there were other questions from the liberals as well about, you know, did you consult with this group, that group, you know, the Federation of Municipalities, there was government asking about the Federation of Municipalities, this particular, everybody was doing that. But at that point, I think consultation became a way to try to poke holes in, in other legislation. So with the police act, there were these concerns raised about the degree of consultation with police on that. Um, you know, that change was to give people who might have potentially been wronged by police a longer window to be able to report that. Um, you know, I don't know if that's something where you expect the police to necessarily be in support <laughs> or if you need them to be in support. Um, so, yeah, that was that, that, that was an odd uh, use of that as well. Uh, we saw, you know, the Greens then kind of, I think it was trying to get back at the Liberals. I mean, how Perry, remember how infuriated he became during debate on his bill to make the internet an essential service. Uh, and those were questions uh, from the Green Party about, well, did you consult with the small internet service providers, etc. I mean, I think there are times when you want to have as broad a consultation as possible. And, and everyone will always bring up the Water Act consultations, yeah. um, you know, and that is something that's so important to everyone on PEI. You want to know what everyone has to think about that. If you're talking about, you know, whether it's potential victims uh, uh, having more time to report something, uh, a, a negative interaction with police or, or you know, whether 16 year olds should be able to vote, maybe not everyone has an equal voice in in uh, in those debates. I know that sounds like a terrible thing now that I said, God, someone's going to come back at me on that one. But um, <laughs> it's not something like the Water Act. I mean, you don't want yeah. to, you know, for instance, in this case, the Greens didn't like seeing the vote denied to those young people because, you know, their parents said they shouldn't have it. That's, yeah. uh, that's an awkward situation. The Liberals were in an awkward situation on the police bill, I thought, because the day before they were asking government why it's taken so long to make changes um, in response to the Black Lives Matter protest, yeah. which ultimately was about how minorities have been treated by police uh, in our society. Absolutely. And the next day saying, well, you're moving too fast with this bill that will give people, you know, a better opportunity to report their grievances with police. Yeah. So, yeah, it kind of got weaponized. It became a political tool. And I don't know uh, if we can get back to somewhere where it's, it's you know, it's used mostly as the the important tool it is on things like the Water Act to make sure that, you know, everybody gets a chance to have their input on topics where, where, where that's really important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think those are great points. Like there's, I think, a required nuance when it comes to consultation. It can't be just kind of like this thing that's just kind of generally talked about, like, oh, we need to consult, we need to consult. Um, I think without 
um, looking at, you know, who are the key people who are impacted by this, maybe who historically have not had a voice on this, you know, who would be most like, I think, detrimentally impacted by this, like when we talk about, um, for example, like the Water Act, like you said, like, it is the general population, but also there are different stakeholders, for example, from um, agriculture, um, you know, from watershed groups, and like, ensuring that those voices are at the table, recognizing kind of that role that they play. And like, like with everything, like, you can't just take this kind of broad approach where it's just like, oh, well, we talked to everyone and this is what they had to say. Like, like you said, like there's kind of, there has to be a bit more of like a, a respect for, I guess, the diverse people around the table where you're talking to them. Um, but yeah, no, I definitely agree with all those points. And it makes you laugh. Like I know I, I laughed at a number of the different points that you brought up, but it's also quite frustrating too, right? Like when you think about, um, for example, the Election Age Act, and, you know, you have mentioned Minister Trivers and Minister McKay having, you know, consulted with people and said, you know what, four years ago, supported extending these rights. Four years later, you know, I talked to some more people in my riding, and you know what, these rights should not exist for these people, and I take it back. Like, <laughs> for me, I was really struggling with how do you get from A to B, and also who did you talk to? Because there wasn't too many details around, like, you know, what was, you know, the age group of the people that you talked to, you know? Mm -hmm. Do they already, like you said, have those ability to, to vote? So um, it's a bit goofy, but I think it's also a bit frustrating at the same time. Yeah, no, for sure. I think the value of a consultation is sometimes limited by the transparency of that consultation. Otherwise, it can just become a tool for government to try to justify the thing it was going to do anyway. So, yeah. uh, and that's the thing when uh, when an MLA says, "Well, I I talk to my constituents," unless they've gone to some lengths that they just don't have time for on every issue to try to document that, um, then you know, it's you just have to kind of take them on their word and. Um, yeah, sometimes, sometimes consultation needs to be kind of, you need to be able to see the paper trail. Mm -hmm. and, and that's why I think like, I think the Water Act was great, because I, as I recall, I think a lot of that information was made public. So yeah, exactly. Like, I think uh, being a bit more uh, clear on what that looks like, like, because when MLA say, oh, I consulted with my constituents, well, what does that mean? Did you phone five people and say, okay, great, job done I talked to people in my community or you know did you host an online kind of town hall you know if so what was kind of the turnout did you host kind of like an in-person social distance outdoor type consultation was there a survey like we never really talk about you know when MLA say in the legislature oh I consulted with my constituents whereas like you said in specific examples like the water act like there's the receipts there to say here's what was done sort of thing. So maybe looking forward to a bit more clarity on, on what that looks like moving mm -hmm. forward. But yeah, okay. As we know, and as we've been talking about, a lot of different things that were discussed in the legislature this past sitting weren't concluded, whether it be due to, well, who did you consult with? And, you know, let's pass this into the summer sort of thing and not have to deal with it now or um, whether it be items that simply um, you know required a bit more time in, in a more genuine form what do you feel will be the primary issues now moving from the spring sitting and that islanders can expect will continue into the fall well one thing i'm waiting for some clarity on i'm waiting to see a plan from government on how it intends to meet its 
net zero targets. Honestly, I'm kind of waiting for government to explain what its net zero targets are. Now, part of this is because I was off after knee surgery. I missed the fall sitting, I've, but I've tried to catch up and I still, uh, I, I, I think government needs to explain um, what it means when it says it has a net zero energy target for 2030. I've read what it says on the webpage. Um, <laughs> and then a net zero emissions target for 2040. Uh, because I think when people talk about a net zero target, uh, we, we tend to think that you're trying to, um, you, you're talking about net zero emissions, but the target for 2030 is not that. Um, that said, uh, government announced these targets, but still hasn't said how it intends to achieve them. 2030 mm -hmm. is coming up quite quickly, yes. especially when you think about how, uh, you know, the, the pace with which a government can move, the pace with which you can make, you know, significant changes in the way our society functions to yeah. try to reduce emissions. Uh, we have, uh, we've spent a lot of time talking about the electric vehicle rebates, which um, will help 100 Islanders buy electric vehicles this year. I don't know how many vehicles we have on the roads. I'm going to throw out a figure. It's probably around 80,000 registrations or something on PPI mm -hmm. uh, between, you know, personal and work vehicles. So um, that's not going to get us very far. And we have six electric school buses, more of those to come. Uh, but this is, we saw on the last or second last day of the sitting, um, the special committee on climate change released yeah. its final report with a bunch of recommendations there. Um, for the minister, Stephen Myers, who this is the sitting where he uh, used the Simpsons analogy to describe how um, the minister, his minister, ministerial role works compared to the committee that provides him with recommendations. Um, that I, It took me a while to understand what he was talking about when he said, um, you're watching the opening of the Simpsons and it shows the baby, Maggie, driving the car. Or is that the baby? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and then and then it pans out and the mom, Marge, is driving the car and the baby <laughs> is the committee and Marge is Minister Stephen Myers. Um, so anyway, <laughs> that's to say, what, if anything comes of all those recommendations from the Climate Change Committee, it'll be up to Stephen Myers, I guess, and, and his government to decide what to do with those. So I'm waiting to see that plan uh, because we have this, I think it's an ambitious target once I understand the 2030 target. Um, and, and we, I'm waiting to see the plan for how government intends to get there. The other thing, of course, um, the Lands Protection Act. Yes, sir. Uh, it's like so much time was spent. <laughs> they, they subpoenaed a report, which the last time that happened, I, I don't know if actually, I don't know if any, uh, I don't know if a committee, how far you'd have to go back to try to find them subpoenaing a, uh, a sitting minister. Yeah. I know I got a copy of the subpoena from, it was like 19 years ago or whatever. It was a bureaucrat with the, I think it was the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. Oh, they okay. wanted him to testify on I forget what outbreak it was, uh, you know, one of the potato wars or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so... <laughs> We had a committee subpoena this investigation report from the justice minister. Um, he delivered it. Uh, they put forward a couple of recommendations. Uh, the Green Party thought it was important enough that they decided to table their own legislation to try to bring about one of those recommendations, a change in the Lands Protection Act, but then they didn't push to have that bill passed. I know I had to host Compass the last day, so I still have to catch <laughs> up. When I, I don't think that bill got through. So um, yeah, there was not much of anything happened on that front and there's so much public interest in terms of um, that particular issue how we manage ownership of 
property on PEI and how we over how we provide oversight of that. Uh, so the, the the minister said, Boyce Thompson, that the Land Matters Advisory Council, the government put together, will deliver its report in the fall, and that's when he'll make changes to the uh, Lands Protection Act, Lands Protection Act 2.0, as he says. It's truly amazing. Sorry, I know Sweta has a has a question after this, but I I just want to get this in. I learned last summer a bit more in depth with one of my um, uh, previous uh, jobs um, with actually government. Uh, about the land isn't really something that I was terribly interested in before and I don't know it was never just something I got into but then in the summer I had to do a lot more research and like the 40-year history of royal commissions white papers uh the Carver report etc it is truly amazing how much research and work has been done on one particular issue with really no movement um it, it, it's like it's really shocking and also i think the ripple effects beyond just the lands protection act for example when we look at um you know how it impacts municipalities and the municipal municipal government act and how it impacts other things such as um you know with that their electoral processes and you know planning and zoning and things like this like it is truly truly amazing how long that whole process has taken so you know when people are saying oh we'll make changes in the fall i'm a little bit skeptical given our history on this um it, it which is so i think coincidental because if we go back to i think the history of pei and absentee landlordism and a lot of the i think really restrictive regulations we have in place you know from just I think the history PEI has had with the finite amount of land that we have and wanting to ensure that's protected it's really been a little bit I think off brand for us in the last 40 years to not be a bit more assertive on this particular policy which I think is disappointing because that's that's 40 years of development without planning and I think a lot of, of waste of land really and, and strategic vision on that um, both in land use but also the environment and, and a lot of other things so it's it's truly amazing. I, it just—it's really shocking, also. So we'll see what happens in the fall. Yeah, Maybe we'll be talking about this next year too. I feel—I feel—I feel a little bit chastised, actually, by your very well-founded skepticism, given the history of this, because I know better. And and I guess here I am thinking, oh well, we'll get that report in the fall. We'll see changes. You know, one of the things we learned because of the committee that had subpoenaed that report that nobody's seen yet—the investigation into yeah. that uh, Brendel land sale. Um, one of the things we found out, the other recommendation, they had one recommendation to close a loophole in the Lands Protection Act, as they described it. Uh, the other recommendation was around, um, you remember in 2019 when this was a fresh issue still, yeah. and Blois Thompson came forward and said, we're going to close the loopholes. Mm -hmm. We started this process to again review the Lands Protection Act, even though people have said, you know, you don't need another review. You need to go back to the reviews that were done before. But there was legislation tabled that fall uh, to make, he said, were some immediate changes that needed to be made. Well, we just found out, at least I did, through this committee report, that those changes that were passed were never enacted. Mm -hmm. And the concern was apparently that they had thought they were trying to uh, strengthen the wording in the legislation to help Iraq be able to determine when multiple corporations are controlled by the same person. Yes, um, yes. And so that was never enacted because they were worried, apparently, that it would have some ripple effect on 
on farm families. I think it just gives you some sense, as you just did in, in with what you said, uh, Emma, as to how difficult it is to make changes here, because here you had the minister introduce changes. Uh, they passed in the House, and yet they were never implemented. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. yeah, no, this is not the end of the road, and thank you for making that clear. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, what this also brings forward, too, is the idea of what happened before then and now. We know some sort of consultations happened, and, you know, during those consultations, political will was clearly lost in trying to make these amendments. So who had a minister's ear in the meantime, and, you know, has everyone who is a stakeholder in this kind of bill and this sort of amendment, you know, have has everyone had their chance to have their voice heard? Or is it, you know, that some voices are unequal to others and, you know, who knows what those voices might be. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. One point that you brought forward, though, has been looking at, you know, committee work. Uh, for a long time, you know, committees were exactly that. It was, you know, Liza driving the car, and then you look back, and it's actually March. Uh, but uh, recently, we've found that legislative assemblies have been very, very active, especially in this sitting, looking at the Standing Committee on Natural Resources and Environmental Sustainability, uh, bringing forward, you know, the Water Act regulations and a number of other bills that have been brought forward by Standing Committee. Um, and, you know, this fall and spring sitting, we've been seeing really, really numerous recommendations and a lot of legislation being passed. So how do you think the role of committees is evolving now and why is that so? I mean, I think it's night and day. I think you can go back to before 2019 and find examples where committees did great work, but it was always just kind of if government was going to let them do that. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. government controlled the committees because they had the majority of the votes on the committees. So, you know, the, the, the example that was probably reported on the most was when the, uh, uh, the public accounts committee wanted to call witnesses, uh, the opposition members on public accounts wanted to call witnesses to talk about e-gaming. Finally, mm -hmm. and I remember this meeting, there was this one day where Jordan Brown had to recuse himself and they had to choose someone to, uh, there was a, something to do with the, the chair wasn't there and had, there was an alternate chair. Anyway, the opposition parties just lucked into having enough votes to call witnesses. Uh, and then <laughs> as soon as the committee sat again the next time, uh, the liberals reversed that. So uh, this is just a, one way to say that, you know, government has been able to control committees. And if there's stuff they don't want committees to do, then the committees haven't done them. Now, uh, with the two members from each party, on each six member committee, it uh, I think it really has made a huge difference. And, uh, and I think it's especially important now that government has again, a slim majority in the legislature, um, because I think uh, we saw some, you know, really interesting, a dynamic emerge when we had a minority government. And I think to a certain degree, that's not continuing. Now, whether a lot of that has to do with the PCs having one more seat or it's because we're two years into this and yeah. some relationships are getting frayed on the edges. But uh, I think the committees are, uh, it's, I, I, I don't think you can overstate what difference it's meant to have no party with control of a committee and, and with the opposition parties, if they want to, having uh, enough votes that they can carry the day at committee. Uh, but I don't think, I don't know that there are a lot of examples where they've needed to. I know there are some of these committees where we've been told, and I know they're always kind of skirting the line, they might get called out for sharing privileged information, but told that, that, that the votes were unanimous, you know, that they received consensus among all six MLAs from all three parties mm -hmm. and put those recommendations forward. Now it's still up to government, of course, what, what it's going to do with them, but yeah, I, I, you cannot overstate the difference that is made in, in committees.
Yeah, and you know, just to jump in there, I know Emma has a question as well, but what do you think the fact that more bills are being brought forward by standing committee, how do you think that's affecting debate in the House? Because clearly for, you know, something to be brought forward, you would have had to have multi-party support. And, you know, do you think that political parties are more or less likely to speak for or against a bill? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I think they have some kinks to work out there. I don't know if you're referring to, we had a number of bills come this sitting uh, from the legislative management committee and there's a rule change and I can't, uh, I can't explain it because I don't, I think it was explained to me, but I'm going to have to have it explained to me several more times. But just basically, they they send bills to the Legislative Management Committee now. Maybe you guys can explain it. You guys are up on this more than I am. Um, some of the bills, when they impact the functioning of the legislature in some way, I, I think is what it is. Uh, but we have like weird things happening, I, I would say. Um, for instance, with the Ombudsperson Act, which is to create a new independent officer of the legislature. So that came from the Legislative Management Committee. Yeah. Uh, it was on paper, it's sponsored by Hal Perry. I went through the Hansard of the debate trying to find quotes. I don't, I don't know that Hal was really the person pushing that forward. Uh, mm -hmm. through the legislature. Uh, I was told by government that it was developed in the premier's office, then put forward to legislative management committee. Uh, it seemed to be the leader of the opposition that had the most to say about it when it was in debate. I think there's, a, there's just a, there's a, a, a problem there finding who, who takes ownership of that bill. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that, that, that's one of the issues that I think they have to work out. But um, I know other parliaments uh, send legislation to committees, um, it's, it's more of a regular thing. And I know mm -hmm. our opposition leader here, Peter Reffin Baker, has been asking to see more of that in PEI. So I think he's gotten what he wished for a little bit. I don't know if, if that's what you're referring to with the stuff coming out of ledge management committee. But um, yeah, well, it's funny in this city, we didn't seem uh, to see a really ambitious legislative agenda from government. Um, mm -hmm. The most uh, you know, far-reaching bills seem to be some of these uh, committee bills, uh, one or two of the opposition bills. Now, then I go by and I find that, you know, one of those government bills that I looked at early in the sitting that got passed, small bill had really big implications for uh, some people. I, mm -hmm. You still need to go back and go through those, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Even when we think about, for example, I know Sweda and I have talked about this topic a million times for listeners, so sorry if you're hearing this again, but um, pertaining to the committee recommendation on universal basic income, mm -hmm. I know like I was pretty skeptical, you know, when that was sent to committee and, and the research that they were doing on what that would look like as a costed model on PEI, um, but then getting unanimous support from the committee, and I think we can't, you know, um, I think we can't count out the soft power that comes from having a committee with all of the parties represented on it, then that being supported, brought to the Legislative Assembly, and now all of a sudden there's a progressive conservative premier who's reaching out to the Prime Minister saying, we want universal basic income on Prince Edward Island, which to me is, wow, that's like very bizarre. I would have never, I think, guessed that, but I think the role of the committee with that kind of um, tripartisan support and the role that it plays in more of kind of a soft power piece, like it's it's hard to walk back uh, either as government or as any other party that's represented on a committee when there has been unanimous support because um, 
yeah, you might be like one of the few ones out or you're walking back what you previously have had on record. And I think people are paying way more attention, I know, either from media or the public as to what committees say. Um, so I think it's, it's really interesting to see that evolution. But I agree with your point, Carrie, pertaining to LMC or Legislative Management Committee. It hasn't seemed to work out the same efficiencies or accountability as maybe, for example, um, the Special Committee on Climate Change um, or, or other examples of that, it seems to be a bit more ambiguous, I think, um, when it comes to, yeah, who's sponsoring it, who does it kind of go back to in terms of responsibility, who's actually the one advocating for this. Um, I know that was a challenge, for example, with the Election Act for a long time was it was housed within the Legislative Management Committee um, as it pertained to impacted the role of the Legislative Assembly. But um, as we know, that was something that there's there's been recommendations of for a really long time that just hasn't been kind of put forward so definitely some things to keep an eye out when it comes to committees yeah and on your point on basic income i thought it was a a pretty hollow request from government before to keep asking the federal government to give us a, a basic income guarantee when they had put no costing figures in there. They yeah. didn't seem to have calculated any costing figures. They weren't saying, here's how much money we're uh, prepared to put into this as a province. Just, yeah. oh, would you give us this? I mean, sure, what province wouldn't take a bunch of federal <laughs> funding for a, yeah. uh, you know, a new program like that? So, I mean, I wondered what it would take for, because I honestly, I didn't think any of those were serious requests until we had a figure and I didn't know why government you know wasn't going to put that together unless government wasn't really that interested in it so uh, yeah it went to committee and now we have a figure uh, it's a pretty big one but what it would cost but at least it's now that debate can move beyond that you know at least it seems now it's a serious debate there's a, a dollar figure that's been attached to it and uh, I'm kind of I was uh, I was a little bit surprised that there was no mention of it at all in the federal budget um, I gather the people in Ottawa that are pushing for this will continue to do that but Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's definitely something that um, we'll continue to hear kind of going back to that question as to what we suspect to hear more from it's kind of like the Lands Protection Act. I feel like this is an item we'll continue to hear. At least I hope. Maybe that's just me being, <laughs> uh, you know, overly hopeful. But I, I, I don't think now that we have kind of, like you said, the dollar figure on it and then the pressing support for it from all groups that it'll hopefully it won't die. We'll see. <laughs> um, our last official question for you, Carrie, is, is one pertaining to the media. I know we've talked a lot about, um, you know, the, the Legislative Assembly and what MLAs are up to, um, but now we're going to shift gears kind of to, to your folks' role as the media. One of my favorite things when we're tuning into the COVID-19 briefings with Dr. Heather Morrison and Premier Dennis King is uh, when Premier King says, uh, now to our friends in the media, like this sort of thing. It's <laughs> without failure. That is always the line. It's it's amazing that he always says that, but it, it's always, um, I think, a nice kind of consistency associated with the briefings. That's kind of a, a bit more lighthearted, of course, than some of the other things that are being discussed. And um as we know, though, there are many barriers that media face when it comes to being the eyes and ears of the public. We mentioned earlier, like, you know, not being president in the Legislative Assembly. Um, other ones are, for example, the fluctuating number of questions permitted during the COVID-19 briefings, you know, over the last year and some. Um, other concerns and barriers that media faces, for example, and I know you've talked about this before, is for example, accessing freedom of information and protection of privacy requests and just kind of some challenges with timing there. 
um, just based on some of these barriers, um, is there room for government to work better with quote unquote our friends in the media? And if so, you know, what are some possible uh, solutions there? Yeah, well, it's, I think it's funny with the, the, the COVID briefings. I think it's become a, a pretty important public health tool for government because it has such buy-in. So yeah. many islanders are tuning into that still every, every time it happens. It is not the best accountability tool for journalists. And I mean, one of the problems that we've run into is um, understanding to whom uh, we would demand that accountability. Because I think, I think for the most part, the premier has done a pretty good job of handing this off uh, to his chief public health officer. Um, but, you know, you, I, I do, I, in the beginning, I used to think about this a lot, less so now, maybe I should keep thinking about it. Um, you know, where is the actual decision-making taking place? You know, are there um, health recommendations that have been impacted by, you know, political considerations, economic considerations? Mm -hmm. It happens all the time. But you want to be able to, I guess, apply um, that, pressure to, to get that accountability from the people making the decisions. And it's not always clear. It's difficult when we have the, the format we have. You're on the phone and, and you get two questions. Every once in a while, I seem to sneak in a third. I know I have to be careful with that. Or I don't know what will happen. But um, it's uh, but there's like there's issues that seem to because there's so much happening on this file. Right. And every briefing, like, you know, the briefing we had last Thursday where we thought we were going to be finding about what's our plan to deal with the AstraZeneca vaccine, things like that. Well, no, we found out we had a, a case at a child care yeah. center. Yeah. Um, so there's so much that's happening. It's hard to dig in and try to get that accountability on anything but what's happening that day. There's one, for instance, I found it really strange early on before we had the mask mandate for indoor public spaces yes. that we were that we didn't have masks at the hospital and so i mean this is you know you you weren't it was kind of up to you or something if you wanted to at that point um and so that was something where i kind of wanted to make someone accountable for um mm -hmm. you know uh what that decision was and, and what the potential public health implications might be. And I just found it really challenging to try to do that uh, as a journalist. Another one is this was brought up just in the last week of the legislature by the liberals. They were asking again about vaccinations for support staff in the hospital. I know this yeah. issue has come up before. I'm still not convinced that we had all the information that maybe we wanted to have in terms of what the plan was to vaccinate everybody involved in the healthcare system, the people who are cleaning uh, the hospital rooms, the people who are working in the cafeteria. Mm -hmm. um, now I could be proven, I could be corrected on that. Maybe that's was in the plan, but um, it's been difficult to try to kind of pursue different avenues like that. You can't get much accountability from a couple questions on the phone. And, and especially when there's so many other important topics every day. Mm -hmm. So I think that's been a, it's been a great, I think a public health tool, but it hasn't been, it's not an accountability tool. I guess it's not meant to be, uh, but as journalists, we, we try to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, and then on, on freedom of information, I think you mentioned that as well. Um, I, it's, this is, this is kind of funny. I'm used to fighting for stuff, um, but there's a new kind of fight 
that I've only seen in the last couple of years. So I'll give you an example of the old kind of fight that is still ongoing. I am still waiting on information from the previous administration. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, probably on more than just this file, but this one particular file is uh, there was a death in custody. And I'm trying oh, to get wow. the circumstances around yeah. that. I have reported a little bit on this this fight to get this information because there's yeah. been one ruling from the Privacy Commissioner already. I'm waiting on another one. Uh, there are other jurisdictions where this would just be public information. Mm-hmm. You don't need to have the name of the person, but the circumstances. Absolutely. Um, the John Howard Society says that's important, even if everything is, you know, everything is fine. People still need to know that. Yes. People need to know that this was unavoidable, that this person received the proper care, et cetera. Um, there was a story I covered. This is a few years ago now. You guys might have been in school still, but it, <laughs> it still seems fresh to me. This was, um, there were two suicides. Well, there's been more than that, but there were two suicides at Hillsborough Hospital. Yeah. One of them was not reported um, and w- under law required an inquest to be held and no inquest was held until we found out about it through freedom of information. Um, and in that case, um, the daughter of the woman who took her life, the second of these, wondered if they had done what they were supposed to after the first suicide, might they have learned things that could have saved her mother? Wow. Important things there. So there's this thing. I got Shit. one ruling. I asked for this information about a death in custody. Government said uh, we can neither confirm or deny that any such record exists. I appealed to the privacy commissioner. She said, well, no, you have to. There's If there's a record, you have to provide it. Yes. So they did provide it and it was completely redacted. There was no useful information in it. And also, I appealed again. So I'm waiting on the second appeal. That's the kind of fight that I'm used to. And sometimes it takes years. There's a new kind of fight where Um, And it's funny because I had come to trust the system too much. There's a new kind of fight where requests just get lost. Lost. Um, (laughs) Well, they're not, I have had several and I've spoken to other people that have had them. Now, COVID might've played a part in this, everybody working from home, et cetera, whatever. Um, But there's the date comes when you were supposed to receive your reply or your information or whatever. um, And, in the past, I always trusted that they would respond by the deadline, even if it was to say, we still don't have it. Um, and, you know, here's why, and you can appeal to the commissioner, et cetera. Uh, and they did, I, I, you know, as far as I can recall, they always did provide the response within the, the, the allotted time. Uh, now, sometimes they just, you have to go through your files and keep track of when are they going to respond by this? What's their deadline for that one? Because sometimes they just, nothing comes and it disappears. Mm-hmm. And there was one that I had with the premier's office, and this for me, I'll, 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 I'm gonna, I'm gonna blame COVID for myself too. I just, kinda, <laughs> but I also I wasn't used to having to track these things to try to, you know, be able to remind them you were supposed to reply by now, and I don't have it. And this one just dropped off the radar, and it was gone. And then months later, I was thinking, well, whatever happened with that request I made? Mm-hmm. And so I started asking with the Access and Privacy Services Office. Those are the bureaucrats who coordinate the responses. And I emailed and I phoned every contact I had in that office and I couldn't get a response from anyone for about wow. two weeks. And then finally they responded to say, oh, sorry, this is late um, and you'll have it by such and such a date. Uh, and so I actually, for the first time, I, I foiped the response to my FOIP. <gasps> wow. Um, wow. 
I've always wanted to try that. And I did it. And I don't know how much I learned, except during that two week window, when I couldn't get anyone from APSO to respond to me, they were going back and forth with the premier's office, um, sort of talking about where the information was and, you know, waiting, I guess, to get the heads up to reply to me with the (gasps) information. Yeah. So that was, and I say there's other ones, there's other things that have happened. It's funny how it's all happened. Now there's another one where it's just like, They'll come back to you and say, you know, there's always a little negotiation, right? Uh, But, you know, well, this is going to take too long to find. Would you, you know, would you be willing to restrict it to this or whatever? Uh, And sometimes those, at least for me, some of those discussions have just kind of trailed off and then they're gone. And sometimes Mm -hmm. it's been, I'm the one who I I thought I provided clarity, but I, I guess I didn't. And other times, though, it was the government side that kind Mm -hmm. of let that, you know, they were supposed to, were in this limbo. Uh, They were supposed to respond and they didn't. But, you know, it's technically we're not on the clock because like this is part of the back and forth to try to pare down the response. I also found since 20, since the election in 2019, I had actually gone several years without being asked to pay for stuff through FOIP. And then mm-hmm. suddenly the, I was being asked to pay for things again. So mm-hmm. not all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, there's an argument we can make in the media. Um, I mean, I think anyone can make it, but it's more effective when you're in the media that, that yep. information is in the public interest. Absolutely. That's our go-to when they want us to pay money to get information. So yeah, some of the stuff has come with a price tag and that surprised me in the beginning because I hadn't seen that for a few years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's this, the, my little state of uh, freedom of information right now. <laughs> wow. And you bring up like so many really good points as well. I think I learned a lot uh, listening to you talk these last few minutes, but just, you know, looking at the freedom of information seems like almost a new strategy when you don't want to say things, just report got lost. We don't, we're not keeping track of this. And, you know, it makes me wonder, and this is necessarily pertinent to the conversation, it makes me wonder about the volume of FOIP requests over the years, because now we know a lot more people are paying a lot more close, closer attention to whatever is going on. So I wonder how much those numbers would have jumped up. Of course, this isn't an excuse for not responding on time, but you know, it begs the question. Yeah. Yep. And I mean, I, I want to take ownership for it. Ultimately, it is up, up to me. I mean, they, they had a duty to respond by that time, but I, I need to be we all need to be more on top of it to make sure that they're doing that. Mm-hmm. And I had just, uh, you know, it's it's hard in the life of a daily journalist to find time to file freedom of information requests mm-hmm. in the first place yep. and hard to find time to go through what you get back if you when, mm-hmm. when you finally get it back. Um, uh, so I hadn't built in that sort of tracking and accountability in my other really great journalists had already done that. And uh, I, I have to join their ranks in in this regard because it, it seems to be required now that you need to be able to have reminders for yourself. And I know actually, I believe on May 12th, I was supposed to get a response uh, from government on, this is one that goes back to more than a year. I'm oh trying to get goodness. copies of all of the, um, all of the, if you're under the Lands Protection Act, mm-hmm. uh, individuals and corporations that are within 75% of the land acreage limit for their holdings have to submit a report to IRAC every year. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to get those reports 
I expect them to have the identifying information redacted. I hope I get to at least see, uh, you know, what their holdings are. Um, but I've been waiting for that one for over a year now. And uh, yeah, I was supposed to get a response a few days ago. So Iraq, if you're listening, please respond <laughs> to Carrie. <laughs> I um, that will be so frustrating too, especially, you know, if you know you're supposed to be the eyes and ears of the public and you don't have the things you're supposed to be looking at. So we'll keep our, our fingers crossed for you as well. Uh, and this, <laughs> Thank you. And this kind of concludes the formal portion of our interview with you today, Carrie. Um, and now we're moving on to the very important, very um unpredictable section, which is yes. the beer panel. Now, as our listeners would know, every week we ask our guests to recommend either a beer, restaurant, recipe, anything under our segment, the beer panel. And Carrie, as our guest today, you get to go first. Oh, well, this is, um, I know whenever I, uh, whenever I go beer shopping, it's a, it's a grab bag. <laughs> it's uh, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Almost all of it is local. There's a couple, there's one regional beer that I'm enjoying these days. And there's one, there's one from Scotland that they age in scotch oh, kegs or something. I forget what that one's called. But for a local, I'm going to give you one beer recommendation. It's because uh, it's very seasonal for me. I tend to like heavier beers. In the winter, I, I like different stouts. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but now that it's getting nice out again, I found that my favorite summer beer is and this is really i'm i didn't make this up this is really appropriate for our interview i think it's rabble rouser red uh, <laughs> which is copper bottom brewing and it's yes. named after paul mcneil's father uh who i <laughs> guess was the original publisher of the eastern graphic and i wasn't around in his days but uh i like what i hear and the beer is named after him as a rabble rousing local journalist and uh i just i love it because it's got a depth and complexity of flavor. Uh, it's got wonderful caramel tones to it, yeah. but it's still light enough that you have it nice and cold on a hot day and it's really refreshing. So it is last year, I think it was, it became my go-to summer beer. And uh, mm -hmm. I think we'll, we'll do that for another summer. Mm -hmm. I love the Rabble Rouser Red. It's so good. I think it was like one of the first beers I ever had from Copper Bottom. And I agree, like it's, it's so good. It's yeah, it's just like it's got a really good full taste to it and it it doesn't get old. Like it's not like you're halfway through the beer and you're like, "Oh, I'm sick of this already." Like it's just very enjoyable. So I agree. <laughs> well, there we go. I could use one now. Everybody could browse a red. Yes. Oh, for listeners, Sweta is now pointing to me uh, for the recommendation. Um, I think I've recommended this one before, but I'll give a bit of a background as to why I'll recommend it again. Um, last Thursday, Sweta and I had the opportunity to enjoy our first patio beer of the summer. It was lovely. Um, it was probably only about 11 or 12 degrees outside. Um, and we actually sat out on the patio at John Brown Grill and they had little heaters and um, blankets as well. And we we're actually the only people outside, which was obviously nice with COVID and being safe and being outdoors. And it was really lovely, actually. It, it was, I didn't mind the cold at all. Um, and obviously we had the option to move inside if we had to, but anyways, you forget how much it's nice to sit outside and just 
kind of enjoy a beer. So um, my beer for that evening and what I'll recommend today is another good summer beer is the White Noise uh, from Upstreet. Um, it's an IPA. Um, I think it's around a 7% if I'm remembering correctly. Sweater correctory if I'm wrong. Um, it's great. I don't know. It's It's got a, a, a kind of... Um, I don't know, citrusy kind of taste to it. Um, it's very cloudy. I remember when the, I have been given the glass, I looked, I was like, wow, I don't remember these being this cloudy. It's like very kind of murky looking. Mm -hmm. So if you can get beyond the weird kind of look to it, it tastes really good and um, it's good for the summer. So that's what I'll recommend. Mm -hmm. I just like to throw in on your patio story. I think we need to expand the patio season in PEI. Yeah. Pre-COVID, we were driving to Ottawa and we stopped off in Quebec City and went through old Quebec and their Quebecers were sitting on the patios drinking their beers outside on March break in the snow yes. and just loving it and I thought well why do we have to wait until it's you know does it, ha it doesn't have to be 14 degrees out we could be outside when it's and it's funny because I was downtown with the kids uh, about a week ago and I saw some people out on the patios and it was not typical patio weather so I thought maybe that's one thing that COVID has done even though PEI we haven't had the restrictions other places have but you know maybe we can at least understand and appreciate that yeah you know we can spend more time sitting outside and doing those things and it's kind of nice mm -hmm. and one uh new thing that i've really enjoyed seeing around this past winter has been uh, the kind of the plastic domes that some restaurants have had i know john <laughs> brown had a couple violet house had a couple and they, they had chairs and heaters and people could sit outside in the snow and just still be warm and cozy with their bubble so i really enjoyed seeing that around town uh, this past winter uh, my beer recommendation for today is also from Bogside with Caramel Notes, and it's the Munich Smash. And uh, as Emma talked about patio drinks, and I was also going to talk about the first patio beer of the summer, so it was my first time trying the Munich Smash this last Thursday at John Brown, um, and it was great. Like, it's definitely a sipping beer. Uh, that, you know, <laughs> it's great for an evening out when you're just chatting with friends for a few hours and, you know, having a nice meal. Um, I'd also like to recommend a restaurant, though. Um, Emma and I had the opportunity yesterday to go to the menu tasting of a new restaurant from Mauritius called The Dodo. So it's on 30 Exhibition Drive, which is where the Wilson gas station is right opposite Abu Ghraib Driving School. Um, so it's a new restaurant. It's the first ever restaurant with Mauritian food in it. So I am obviously very, very excited about that. Because, <laughs> uh, certain things I don't have the patience to cook. And the food is just delicious, tastes like home. Um, the crispy chicken was great. It's just so tender, very well seasoned, just melts in your mouth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which was a really, really great experience. Mm -hmm. All right, now I need crispy chicken and a beer. <laughs> can't go wrong uh, we're so lucky on PEI like there's so many folks from different places and and we have the opportunity to have authentic cuisine from places that like such as Mauritius are thousands of kilometers away but are made in a traditional style and are, are found locally here so um, definitely check out the dodo it opens tomorrow a uh, Monday sorry Monday, so for too. listeners today um <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, definitely check it out. And they have delivery as well. So if folks are um, trying to stay extra careful with COVID-19, um, mm -hmm. they have uh, zero contact delivery. So that's mm -hmm. also a great uh, addition for them too.
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Speaking of restaurants, I had one last thing I wanted to talk about. Um, and as Emma knows, I love fish and chips. I think there was a summer a few years ago where that's all I would order from restaurants. And then I had this ranking going on in my room uh, with like the list of best fish and chips. But I have been told <laughs> the best fish and chips on PEI was actually at the Kensington train station, which is the Go Fish Eatery. And that's where I had planned to go have supper today. But Unfortunately, in the early hours today, um, the restaurant burnt down. <gasps> so um, the folks, however, have started a GoFundMe to kind of help them rebuild the restaurant, especially since it's just the start of the season. So oh we'll probably be linking to that on our website and social media as well. If anyone wants to contribute to the GoFundMe and help these folks get back on their feet. Oh my gosh, I was not expecting that. I thought you were going to say, this is the greatest restaurant ever. Please go check it out. Oh my goodness. I hope everyone's safe. Is everyone safe? Everyone's safe. The fire was around 3 to 4 a.m. this morning, so uh, it was empty. But yeah, and that's everything I had to share today. Um, I'm learning about news from listening to dialogue with Jacob So Thank you for that. I missed that this morning. My goodness. Well, hopefully it's good to know that everyone is safe and mm-hmm. hopefully they'll get back on their feet. A, another great local restaurant in Kensington. They've got a bunch in Kensington, actually a, a number of different great local restaurants there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, too many you. options. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think this concludes our interview. Thank you so much for joining us, Carrie, on your lovely sunny Sunday afternoon and instead talking to us for an hour and a half. We really, really appreciated it, and we got to learn a lot from you. You guys are going to have your work cut out for you editing this. It went on for so long. It's been my pleasure. I really love I love listening to the podcast. I mean it. I learn things, and I gain insights, and it's an honor to, for you guys to have asked me to, to appear. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm. Well, I, as I said to you before we hopped on the call, like it's, it's amazing to have someone such as yourself as a legislative journalist and kind of the local expert be able to kind of give the rundown for listeners following this past sitting, which was really unique. So I think the honor is all ours and, and it was awesome to get to talk to you. Well, at any time, just <laughs> let me know. And that's all the time we have for today, folks. Thanks again to Kerry for joining us on a Sunday afternoon. As always, our music is Gaspé Z by the very talented Shane Pendergast. Shane has three shows coming up, the first being Kaylee at the Benevolent Irish Society, and that's Friday, June 4th, 2021, from 8 to 10 p.m. Then he's got two shows back-to-back, Shane Pendergast Live at the Harmony House, and that's Friday, June 11th, and Saturday, June 12th, 2021, 7.30 to 9.30 p.m. Do not miss out on these shows, folks. You can find tickets at shamependergast.com. We hope you're staying safe and making the most of the sun. This has been Dialogue. Yeah.